0: As a college kid, I, back in the day when hitchhiking was still actually a thing. Oh, wow. I hitchhiked across the country. I went to school briefly in Colorado before getting kicked out after a couple of arrests. And so I had flown by in a car, Omaha, on I-80, I'm sure a million times. Okay. But had never actually pulled off and checked it out.
1: Okay, the Lost Sons of Omaha by Joe Sexton, who came into our Omaha world, I would say, had to have been unexpectedly for you. Before this case, I just have to ask first: Did you have any impression of Omaha? Any thought? What came to mind? Anything at all? And I'm sure you never expected you'd spend significant time here.
0: It's a funny thing. I've traveled quite a bit of the country. I spent 25 years at the New York Times, and then another eight years at ProPublica, and I covered sports for a while and baseball and really crisscrossed the country. And when I finally did come out to work on the book, I was really quite charmed by much about Omaha. And that was a bit of a a revelation for me. The more time you spend there, the more you learn about it and the more you come to appreciate that Omaha, like almost every place on the planet, is its own complicated world. That's right. Um, And good sides, some darker sides, Uh, some historic issues. People in all the communities in Omaha that I went to do my reporting welcomed me, and I felt very, very blessed to be there and appreciative of its history, and I hope its promise going forward.
1: Absolutely. The personal stories are very moving. I have to say I found James Skurlock's The Mother of His Child, a tragic character in her own right, Maybe tell us a little bit about that, and have you heard from her? How is she doing, and their child? And again, I found that part particularly moving, I have to say, and sad.
0: Yeah, it was a very powerful interview. When I was first trying to contact her in the initial weeks and months after the incident, she was really not inclined to talk, and I let it go for a long time. And it was almost a year later when I showed up in Omaha to begin to report out the book more thoroughly, that I reached out to her again and she actually responded. And she said in one exchange that she felt like she needed to tell her story. And so we met in her apartment in Omaha. The child she had with James is a girl named Jules. And she was running around in her diaper and a charming little kid. And we had hours long, pretty, deep conversation about her life story, about her relationship with James, and about a future for her that felt forever diminished. Mm. But when I met with her, she was pregnant with another child. She had met another man. She seemed upbeat about that. She ultimately shared with me some entries she'd made. I wouldn't call it a diary. She talked about maybe herself wanting to write a book, but she had done some, you know, writing herself to try to capture her feelings at the time. And it was extremely powerful and moving and shattering in the end. And she was gracious enough to share that with me, as well as a lot of the correspondence she had with James, typically when he might have been locked up for one thing or another. And through those letters that she shared with me is really one of the few moments in the entire book or story where people can actually hear James in effect in his own voice. By the time this becomes a story, of course, he's dead and we're never gonna hear from him again. And while people and his family members and friends and others can talk about him, describe him, you know, characterize him and his childhood and his life and his struggles, It's priceless to have him in his own words. And it was only through the generosity of Mari who shared them with me that the world got to hear a little bit about James. He's quite articulate in the letters and he's self-reflective and often hurt and ashamed of some of the things he's done. But he also has a real resilience and a degree of hopefulness so it was a great act of kindness by her and i'll be forever grateful yeah some of your own
1: reportorial skills come into play and i meant to ask when you went to norfolk to get these records you had to go in front of a judge and say what was up and did you have any sense that any other reporter had done that or do they tell you like you're the first who's accessed these records no no
0: And it fills me with a little bit of sadness to say this. Look, at the time the incident happened in May of 2020 and the months that followed, I have no desire to badmouth local press. I think there was an honest effort made by whether it was the Omaha World Herald or the local TV stations to try to capture what was going on. And various national outfits, The Guardian dropped in, The Washington Post did a version of a story, and then they flew out. And the fact that no one did what I ultimately did for the book doesn't make me some kind of super reporter. It's more a testament to the fact that so much of our local news infrastructure has been eviscerated these days. The World Herald is a shell of what it was in its heyday. And that local TV or local radios doesn't have the resources to take the time and to dig deeper and to make a real investment in trying to find out where truth rested. And it was an opportunity for me. It felt like an obligation, but I did it recognizing that there was something also unsettling about the fact that I was the first one to have figured out what were the real particulars of James Scurlock's criminal past or what was the fuller picture of Jake Gardner's service in Iraq. That's a pity, but uh, I'm a reporter and newspaper man at heart. And when you find material that no one else has seen, it feels both exciting and validating to be able to bring that to the public.
1: And before reading this too, I had the thought if these two met under different circumstances, perhaps they'd have gotten along. In the book, it's revealed that they had met, uh, or at least had encountered each other and several times. I I found it that had not come up locally.
0: Yeah, I think the only interactions they had really were over the issue of who gained entrance into Jake's bar. And one of Jake's business partners, who I talked to at length and who was there that night and who testified before the grand jury, he described when they came together, face to face in the street that night on May 30th. He believed that James definitely knew who Jake was, was the owner of the Hive. He was less sure whether Jake really recognized James as somebody with whom they might have had some disputes about getting in. But it was fascinating to know that James's brother told me that Jake's bar, the Hive, was one of their favorite places to go. Yeah. And while there's some controversy around whether there was a racially discriminatory door policy something about that place attracted young men of color to come uh and hang out so the idea that it was some white supremacist you nazi know, hangout was yeah was just undermined not only by the testimony of others and the facts of Jake Gardner's life but by you know james's own kind of expressed desire to go there
1: Yeah. You couldn't make it up, and that was just, again, there's so many connections, and you also get to know the marine community. There's fascinating account of Jake Gardner's service in Iraq, especially, as well as Haiti, which I, again, don't recall that was in the public domain, or much of it at all, but prior to this book. I want to throw it to you if you had any last thoughts.
0: One is, there's a sort of astonishing coincidence that just as my book was being published in early May, there was a case in New York... Where a young former Marine had an encounter on a subway train with a young African American right. homeless person, and ultimately wound up choking him to death in the subway car, and so much of the elements that happened in Omaha in 2020 played out in New York in 2023. Yep, and misinformation and claims that the african-american young man was lynched somehow and the marine initially not being arrested but then later indicted a remarkable set of coincidences
1: that's right but i think there's a
0: connection between the two of them and i would say this whether you are citizens of omaha or young journalists getting into the business of reporting three things in both cases one First accounts of controversial incidents should always be mistrusted. Sometimes they're right. It's not impossible for them to be right. But more often, if they're not outright wrong, there's much more nuance to them than in the initial accounts. Take the initial accounts seriously, but bring a degree of skepticism to that. The second is, have your first instinct not be to blame, to want to apportion blame for it but to actually better understand what actually happened. We're all so quick to want to blame. And look, I can be guilty of it as well. We all do. I think that's
1: human nature, obviously.
0: Yeah. And so if you can resist that temptation for your first instinct to be to blame and have your first instinct to be to better understand, I think that's a good thing. And then finally, we're in a moment in this country where there's so much division and so much mistrust and so many really serious issues. Even in the story in Omaha, you have questions about the fairness of the criminal justice system. You have questions about the menace of a weaponized internet and what can happen with a kind of vigilante mob online. You have in Gardner's case, the failure of this country to better care for the people they asked to go and fight their wars. You have political divisions. So many strains of what I think currently afflict the country were there in Omaha. And those bigger themes and questions and issues and concerns and grievances need to be respected, but not at the cost of looking at the particulars of any individual case. You can't allow an individual case to get swept up into the larger problems in America. You must respect what actually happened because Everybody is owed that effort. Joe Sexton, the lost sons of Omaha.